So welcome to the Line to Line class here at Third Avenue Baptist Church. I'm Albert Moeller, and it's a thrill to have you here and for us to be back together. And I'm very excited about the passage to which we're going to turn today from the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John. So as we begin this morning, let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we are so incredibly thankful for how you have given us all things in Christ. And you've given us this morning the ability to gather together for the expositional study of your word. And uh, Father, our prayer is that you will be glorified in all that we say and do, and that your word will increase in us and then through us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We come to John chapter 13. We enter into the farewell discourse of the gospel of John. And as John, contrasted with the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, writes in his own distinctive Holy Spirit-inspired style, this farewell discourse is this lengthy period just prior to the events of Christ's arrest and uh, trial and crucifixion and resurrection, in which Jesus speaks so intimately to his disciples. And so we'll have chapters now uh, of some of the most intense discussion between Christ and the disciples, but really it's a discourse by Christ. And so we're going to be headed into territory uh, such as where Christ is going to talk about himself as the, as the vine and the disciples as the, the branches. He will begin to speak of what it means for the world to hate him and thus for the world to hate his. And uh, he will speak of the encouragement he gives to the church and the gift of the Holy Spirit that is coming to the church. And he, he will speak all of this in this great message, uh, which is really several different teaching occasions put together in this farewell discourse that begins in chapter 13. But as in so many cases, when you're studying the Scripture, right in the foreground to the passage of our primary consideration this morning there is another text at the end of chapter 12 to which we're going to turn because this text also has a continuing refrain. So what we're going to do is, uh, is just look at the last paragraph of John chapter 12, and uh, this passage begins in verse 44. We read, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So that's a passage that now, in retrospect, looks backward and forward. This is a, this is a culminating passage for everything in the first 12 chapters of John. This is the conclusion of this particular uh, portion of the gospel telling us about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the events that were connected to that. But it also does something else. It, it ties back to John chapter 1, the prologue. Now, in a way that is unique to John, the prologue never leaves us. The prologue's always here. It, and when we look backwards, we realize 
in the prologue, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we were given so much that really is the Gospel in concentrated miniature just by itself. And and so, even here at the end of chapter 12, notice the the, the part about both receiving light and believing, which which comes right out of the prologue. And so, you have here Jesus, who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me, I have come into the world as light, again, right there from the first chapter, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, hold on to that, because at the very end of the uh, paragraph, the text of our main concern this morning, this is going to come up again, and uh, in a way I think will be uh, extremely helpful. But the farewell discourse begins with the beginning of chapter 13. And the signifier of a shift into the discourse is what you see translated in English as the word now. So it's a, it's a typical literary device to say that this is a break, this is, this is something new, uh, and then this happened. So in the beginning of chapter 13, we read these words. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come back, he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, You have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who it was who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Spirit, the Scripture, will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. 
It's a stunning passage. As I say, I've been looking forward to arriving at this passage. Part of it is simply because the farewell discourse is so absolutely precious to the church and understanding not only the condition of the church when Jesus ascended to the Father, and he was speaking very, very much about that to the disciples, but this is the condition of the church now. So, so much of what we read about here in the farewell discourse is Jesus spoke to the disciples. It's Jesus speaking to the church now, and that's just incredibly powerful. We will live on these words. But it begins in this strange way. It begins with Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And most people, when they look at this passage in the first half, say, or the first part of John 13, they just think, well, that's Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And, and, and we know what that is, so we can acknowledge that it's there, and uh, then we can... Uh, we just move on to what's coming in the trial, uh, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and uh, the resurrection. But we dare not rush, because this is actually perhaps the most shocking incident in the Gospel of John. And it may not seem shocking to us, because this is a different world in a very real sense, but it was so shocking that Peter sought not to receive it. We need to pay attention to what's going on here. But let's look at the very first words of the passage here in John 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, so the, the, the Last Supper's coming. The, the, the supper itself is coming. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So Jesus knows his hour has come. And, and so earlier we saw in the Gospel of John, as we've gone through it word by word and line by line, we saw where Jesus said, my hour's not come. My hour's not yet come. And, and then the beginning of the sequence that leads up to the farewell discourse and eventually the passion narrative is where Jesus says, my hour has now come. Or we're told Jesus knew that his hour had come. And in this case, in chapter 13, is elaborated a little bit. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world. Now, that's crucial because those are words that we'd not, we'd not confronted before. The, the, my hour's not yet come. Or he knew that his hour had come. We've seen that before, but his hour had come that he would depart out of the world because that sets the stage for understanding the meaning of the farewell discourse. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples about when he will not be present, physically present with them. So they don't yet understand all of this. And uh, even in this passage, as we shall see, they're told, you don't even understand what I'm doing right now, but you will understand it later. The, the time will come when you will understand it. You don't understand it now. And, and in sympathy to the disciples, we have to understand they could not have understood a lot of what Jesus is saying because we understand it looking backwards from, uh, from all that, that followed. But they're experiencing right now what Jesus is saying and doing. He knows that his time has come to depart out of the world. And then the sweet language that you see here at the end of verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved his own who were in the world, 
He loved them to the end. So his own. This sets up what Jesus will refer to when he speaks of himself as the vine and we as his branches. This uh, speaks of what it means for Christ to be the good shepherd and we his sheep. We are his own. We belong to him. The climactic explanation of this will come in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And even some of what we're seeing right here in this passage in John 13 will be both explained and expounded in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. Two themes in particular. One, the fact that uh, the world is, the population of the world is divided between those who belong to the world and those who belong to Christ. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus will say to the Father, I'm not praying for a whole world, I'm praying for those you have given me. Well, there's again the own, the possession. He, he's praying for those, the church, whom the Father has given to the Son. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, now, what's the end? Well, the end is the end. Uh, in the sense of even a day of judgment, all the way to the end. In the sense of the coming end of life uh, on this earth and the resurrection of the dead. He, he has loved us to the end. And He will love us eternally. But this clearly puts both His incarnation and the events of space-time and history and our space-time and history existence in a timeline that has past, present, future, beginning, and end, and he loves his own to the end. It's very, very sweet. It's actually one of those embedded promises in Scripture that we depend upon. He loves us to the end. And then you have the shift to what Jesus is going to do. It happens during supper. Verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now, we encounter this very same kind of phrase in John chapter 6, where Jesus is talking about the gospel. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I'll by no means cast out. No one can come to me except the Father draws him to me, and I'll raise him up on the last day. He is very, very clear about his own in that passage, and makes it clear by the time you get to the end of John chapter 6 that he knows that there is one of them who is not of them. So even in John chapter 6, early in the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus knew that Judas Iscariot was indeed to betray him, knew he was not of him. So in that distinction between those who belong to Christ and those who belong to the world, he knew that even though he was posing as a disciple, Judas Iscariot actually belonged to the world and not to him. And right now that's really crucial because events are going to begin to go into sequence in which it's really important for us to know that nothing takes Jesus by surprise. He knew everything that was going to happen. And he's not surprised, even as the other disciples must have been 
surprised beyond words, uh, by Judas Iscariot. That seems to be important here, right here in, in John chapter 13, even in these introductory verses, because it appears that John, as the Holy Spirit is, is moving him to write, John wants us to know Judas is in the background to this. Now, the reason I think why that becomes so important is because what follows is the greatest act of intimacy that is ever exchanged between Jesus and the disciples. It is an extraordinary, unprecedented act when Jesus washes their feet. It's an extraordinary moment, so extraordinary that it's shocking to the disciples. John tells us just, first of all, the mechanics of how it took place. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, wrapped it around his waist. What must the disciples have thought as they were watching this? Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Where does this come from? This washing of the feet. It's clearly an act that they recognize. But it's an act in this context that is shocking to them. And in one sense, not shocking in a good way. Uh, they are embarrassed. They are perhaps even a little scandalized. Why? Well, let's think about foot washing in the Bible. I don't mean just foot washing as in we can figure out how that's done with water in a basin. We can figure out how that's done. But in Scripture, where does this really begin? It begins in Genesis 18. You'll recall that in Genesis 18, Abraham experiences a theophany. We're actually told the Lord visited Abraham. And Abraham saw three men in, uh, in Genesis 18 there at the Oaks of Mamre. And looking at Genesis 18, and the Lord appeared to him by the Oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. There's much more to that passage. But in that central part of the opening greeting that Abraham gives them, he speaks of the washing of their feet. Let a little water be brought. And, rest, and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Well, the background to this is, of course, just partly mechanical when we understand the process of walking and open shoes in a... Uh, in a dusty world. It also has something to do with the status of feet. Feet become very, very important 
in the Bible, in biblical symbolism. Very, very important. Uh, you, you have Moses taking off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. Watch your feet. You have the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 3 who, with six wings, show modesty. With two, they cover their eyes. With two, they cover their mouths. With two, they cover their feet. There is an oddness to the word feet sometimes in the Old Testament, just in Hebrew euphemism, uh, referring to the most private parts and simply saying feet, or in some cases thigh, by the way, is in Abraham's commission for a servant to find Isaac a wife. But usually feet just means feet. And in this case, feet just means feet. It meant so in Genesis 18. These men had been walking, and as a sign of respect and of necessity, a couple of things. Number one, before one would enter a house, one would uh, wash one's feet. And uh, there are cultures in the world right now where it's expected that one would take off shoes before entering into someone's house. There is this in which Genesis 18, you need to notice something. Abraham does not wash their feet. He invites them to uh, be in the shade and uh, have some water brought so that their feet can be washed and that they can rest under the tree. Foot washing in this context would have been done by one of Abraham's servants. It's something Abraham would have had done as a, as a host for these who have come, very honored guests. And he he does not understand this to be a Christophany. He, he, he doesn't have enough knowledge to understand. But he doesn't understand it to be a theophany and, and refers to the visitation of his Lord. But there, there are three people. There's a lot of mystery in this passage. But what's not mysterious is what's going on with the washing of their feet. So it was a sign of honor. It was something of a necessity before entering a home. It was a sign of a host receiving a guest and doing so with honor. You don't wash your enemy's feet. And uh, it was something that Abraham did not do himself, but would have arranged to have done. We can just jump now to the Gospels, just uh, knowing that as background, and uh, wearing open sandals tied with thongs in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you know, archaeological uh, evidence shows you something of the development of these with the Probably in the first century, a somewhat Roman uh, invention of the cuff uh, of the sandal at the top to which the straps would be tied. But then that takes us to something else. We, we really have encountered foot washing in the Gospel of John. You just didn't know it was there. Look back to the prologue again, John chapter 1. It's here, but you have to recognize it. In the middle of John chapter 1 is the testimony of John the Baptist. For the sake of time, just look at verse 24. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? In verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me 
the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The key issue there is the distinction that John is making between himself and Jesus. And speaking of Jesus, he says, he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. Well, that sounds like that's a strange metaphor. Someone said that today, it'd be lost on us. But what, what it means is in preparation for the washing of feet. He, uh, John the Baptist is saying, I'm unworthy to wash his feet, even to begin the process by unstrapping the sandal. Uh, it, that, that's something I would not be worthy to do for the Christ. I'm not worthy to wash his feet. Well, then turn to John 13, and Jesus will wash the feet of the disciples. And the passage just tells us right away that's what Jesus is doing. It gives us some detail about Jesus' own preparation, how he removed his outer garments, and tied a towel, which probably uh, in the first century not, not have been something that looks like one of our towels. It was probably a very long piece of cloth that, uh, that might be used by the entire household to clean and to dry. Uh, there's some evidence that some of these towels had kind of a clean end and a dirty end. So you used part of it for the removal of the dirt and the other to dry off. And uh, then, of course, you'd have to wash the, the cloth. But it would be long enough. He could wear it almost as a girdle and skirt. He could have it around himself. And the servants probably did this all the time. It was, a, it was probably a very familiar sight. Uh, for the servant to tie on this kind of towel. It's a very uncommon sight and unprecedented and shocking for Jesus to do the same. That's, I think, part of why John gives us the detail. He wants us to see that the disciples were seeing this take place, and they must have been nearly speechless in awkwardness, thinking, what in the world is he going to do? It can't be what it appears to be, but it was. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples, and this apparently means all of them. He washed their feet and uh, wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So we don't have any detail about with which disciple he began and what was the sequence. He just, we are told, began to wash their feet and then to wipe their feet with the towel. But the disruption comes when he arrives at Simon Peter. In verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, this is one of those interesting sentences, either in the Greek or in an English translation, when it's, it's hard to know where the emphasis might have been in the articulation of the sentence. You wash my feet? You wash my feet? But actually, every word of it's shock on the part of Simon Peter. What, what, what is happening here? This is, this, is, this is unthinkable. But it's happening. And, and it's an act of service from one on behalf of another. 
It's something that is done for the disciples here, and, and done in its entirety. And that's made clear by the fact that Jesus is the agent in all of it. So it, 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 we're not told that one of the disciples brought him uh, the water uh, in, in a bowl. We're not told that, that one of the disciples brought him the, the towel. Jesus is the agent in all of it. They are passive in all of it. Do you begin to catch a theme here? The disciples are contributing nothing but feet, nothing but dirty feet to this entire process. Christ is doing everything necessary in the washing of their feet. And they're shocked by this, that He would do this for them. Now, of course, it really helps us to see this as in the sequence that will lead to His crucifixion and substitutionary atonement. It helps us to see that. And clearly, our, our hearts get excited in thinking about what this tells us even as a picture of the substitutionary atonement before it's going to take place, where we bring nothing but our sin, as the hymn says, nothing in our hands we bring only to Thy cross and cling. We, we bring nothing but dirty feet. He does everything. But then he arrives at Simon Peter. Lord, do you wash my feet? What's Jesus going to say? Oh, Peter, just be quiet. Get with it. No, 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 no. There's something of incredibly deep theological significance in how Jesus responds to Peter. Jesus answered him, verse 7, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. That's a, a sentence that, by the way, should be something of an interpretive motto for the Gospel of John. That's, because that's come up again and again and again. You, you don't understand this now, you'll understand this later. You don't, Jesus says that uh, in, even in John chapter 6. You know, he, he says, uh, that's why I told you. Uh, don't be surprised when there are people who walk away. Uh, Jesus will speak that way. He already has spoken that way. Uh, you, you, you'll understand this later by and by. And he means in particular, in this case, of course, you'll understand it better after the death, burial, and resurrection. What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter, making the point that he does not understand, this is Peter, you would think that if the Lord said to Peter, you don't understand this now, but later you'll understand. That would be the conversation stopper. Not with Peter. Bless his heart. We are Peter. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Now, with sympathy to Peter, let's think about this. Peter means to speak out of respect. He means to speak out of love. He means to speak out of, his, out of his understanding that it is Jesus who is the Lord and they who are his disciples. He understands that. He doesn't want that order to be upturned. And, and I think we understand that. We don't want that order to be upturned. We, we, we resist it, and we resist it rightly because we, we know who Christ is. We don't want to see the order violated or turned upside down. But actually, 
The Gospel of John helps us to understand, and the Apostle Paul will deal with this. Just think of a passage like Philippians chapter 2. That's what the atonement is. When he who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the children of God. He does everything for us. He dies in our place. He who is without sin dies. He willingly suffers arrest and humiliation and trial and, of course, crucifixion, sheds His blood unto death. And it is described in the Scriptures as a washing of our sins. The feet come first, a picture. But what Jesus says to Peter is, if I don't wash your feet, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're not part of me. Why I'm doing you do not understand. Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You're not mine. And again, already he's spoken about those who are his as compared to the world. That will become absolutely crucial in John 17, a high priestly prayer. But he's saying it right now to Peter. If you're mine, I wash your feet. If I don't wash your feet, you're not mine. You have no share in me. Rightly understood, Christianity is the most humiliating message humanity could ever hear. We are totally guilty, every single one of us. We deserve nothing but death eternally, every single one of us. We have no purchase on Christ or on God and His mercy, any one of us. But in Christ we have received mercy. Those of us who have received Him, all of us. And that world's turned upside down because there was nothing that we did or could do Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Ablutions are just about universal in religious practice. It's interesting. One, one way or another, just about every religious organization, movement, every organized religion finds some way to ritual ablutions. Why? I think it's, it's Romans 1. It's the fact that God has, has revealed Himself and His, even His invisible right attributes in, in nature, and that means also in our hearts and our consciousness. And, and He also has given us the awareness of ourselves to the extent we know ourselves to be sinners. We really do. Like I say, I, the perfect proof of that to me is the two-year-old who's never been told something's wrong but does it and hides. You know, we, there is a law written on our hearts. And so there's a sense that we know we're dirty and we need to be washed in one way or another. Just about every religious practice and even some secular practices come to some kind of baptism. Water's going to be a part of this. Washing's going to be a part of this. But not one of them can wash anything other than feet and hands. This is all about the atonement. The washing of the feet is just a picture of what's coming in the washing of us, those who are His, from our sins. Peter does get it at this point. Once he's had this 
this word that if he doesn't have his feet washed, then he doesn't belong to Christ. He says, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. It's so sweet. Peter gets there. This is one of the reasons why Peter is such an example to all of us. He, he, he gets there. Uh, then, Lord, if you're going to wash my feet, it's not just my feet that are dirty. It's all of me. Father, uh, 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 Lord, I don't desire that you would be Lord only of my feet, but of my head and my hands. Just do it all. Just do it all. Uh, what Jesus is doing is the washing of feet. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. What is Jesus saying to Peter when he said, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean? Well, the, uh, the full bath was something that didn't take place as often as we have the luxury of experiencing a full bathing. But uh, between full baths, one washed feet at least daily. One... Uh, no matter what status within the society, rich, poor, powerful, powerless, you, you would not get into bed without washing your feet. And under normal circumstances, you wouldn't, wash, you wouldn't enter the house without washing your feet. And you, wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't bring the dirt of the street into the house. If you're receiving a guest, and you know this from multiple instances in Scripture, the washing of the feet is a sign of hospitality. Jesus here is just saying, there's more to it than this. But he refers to Peter as clean. It's very sweet because he refers in the high priestly prayer, and as we shall see, in this passage to those the Father has given him that already belong to him. They, they already belong to him. It's as if past, present, and future, even though we're looking here at the passion coming and the cross coming and the empty tomb coming, there's a, there's, between the Father and the Son, there's a, there's a collapse of that into the accomplished fact that from eternity the Father has given some to the Son. We're told Judas, not one of those. The other disciples, they are those. And Peter here is being told, you're washed, Peter, because you're mine, Peter, but your feet. Tonight I'll wash your feet. It's just so incredibly sweet. And again, it's so shocking because for Jesus to wash the feet of his disciples was turning the world upside down. That's not the way it should be. They should wash his feet. He doesn't wash their feet. But actually, it's worse than that. Because in the, in the first century Jewish world, if you were a host who had servants, your servants would wash your guests' feet. You wouldn't wash them yourself. Like Abraham in Genesis 18, you would arrange for their feet to be washed as a sign of Semitic 
Near Eastern hospitality and something that would be understood. I think, I think you or I, knowing just about nothing of the context and uh, local practices, if this happened to us, we would understand it. If we were traveling and came to someone's home and they sent out a servant with a basin of water and the servant washed our feet, we would receive that as sweet hospitality and care, a sign that we were welcome. This is turning the world upside down. And, and, and not only that, by the time you get to first century Judaism, it was, uh, it was publicly embarrassing, publicly embarrassing. It would happen in private, but it was publicly embarrassing for a Jew to wash another Jew's feet. And in particular here, you're talking about a Jewish man to wash another Jewish man's feet. That was publicly embarrassing for a couple of reasons. One, it is an act of intimacy within the domestic context. That's very important. And the other is, it's just a matter of status. And look, I don't care what society we're a part of, there's still acts and signs of status. This is one that's just been turned upside down. And elaborately so. The passage is considerable. It tells us a lot, even in detail, because it is really important that we know how the world's just been turned upside down. But, but there's more to it. In verse 12, we're told, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. So here's something else. He was at dinner, and remember, dinner would mean reclining at a common meal. And Jesus rose, we're told, and, and so he would have gotten up from reclining at the common meal. And uh, the disciples remained there. So this shows you the, the physical act was uh, Jesus having to be right on the floor, on his knees in all likelihood, to wash their feet as they were reclining at table. Jesus got redressed, putting on his outer garments, resuming his status, so to speak, in this sense. And, and then he, he took his place at the meal again. So the, the, they didn't all just get up and leave at this point. He comes back, and now it's the intimacy of the discussion. He's going to tell them things that he can tell to those who are his own, whose feet he has just washed. And again, footnote, he knows about Judas. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? The answer to that, by the way, has to be no. Not fully. He asked it in a rhetorical sense, and then he goes on to explain it in verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. It's another I am statement right there. I am. I am your teacher and Lord. You're right. Absolutely. Rabbi. Lord. If I then, your Lord and teacher, so there's the, there's the hierarchy again, that's the, okay, that, that's, that's where it's supposed to be. He's the, he's the Lord and teacher, they're the disciples, but, but he, he's making that very point. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Well, we need to pause here for just a moment and ask the question, is, is this then a, an ordinance? Is this, is this, is, is this an ordinance? That should, we, should we think of the ordinances of Christ in worship as being baptism and the Lord's Supper and uh, foot washing? And uh, the answer is 
no. And the, the question would be, well, why not? I mean, why not? Why? Jesus spoke about baptism, and baptism clearly was something that was to be repeated over and over again. It's the sign of entry. It's the public profession of faith. And uh, needless to say, it is, uh, it is central to our understanding as Baptists. The Lord's Supper, as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, as often, Jesus here says to the disciples, I've done this to you, you need to do it for each other. It seems to go on, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. But we, we don't have a foot washing service here, so why not? Well, for one thing, uh, as a New Testament church, we are instructed by the Gospels, of course, first and foremost, and we're also instructed by the remainder of the New Testament telling us how the Holy Spirit instructed the New Testament church to function. And baptism in the Lord's Supper immediately became normative as part of the worship and experience of the church. There's no reference after this to uh, foot washing as a specific act, as a specific act. Uh, uh, when Paul writes to Timothy, it'd be a reference to it as a, just a, a, a sign of respect, but it has, it has to do with widows. So it's, it's, in other words, it's not, it's, it, it's not an ecclesial act. It's not a congregational act. Uh, there's no reference to the church, the early church doing this. And it's... Um, it's just, it never became, with uh, some examples of, uh, of uh, exceptions, such as uh, some of the Anabaptists in the 16th century, and uh, then uh, some who would call themselves foot-washing Baptists, uh, mostly in Appalachia in the United States, as a kind of a primitivist streak. But with those exceptions, it's never, and it's not in the New Testament, in the epistles, not the book of Acts, there's anything that continued amongst the disciples in the early church. So that's the reason why it's not as an act understood to be an ordinance as the acts of baptism in the Lord's Supper are. So then, yet it is an order of Christ, it's a command of Christ. So the early church understood that command to be one of, uh, to be metaphorical, that is in service. We're to love each other in such a way that we wash each other's feet. And baptism and the Lord's Supper have cross-cultural, trans-temporal meaning. Uh, we're not wearing sandals on dusty roads. It's not the necessity it was. But the necessity of serving one another and loving one another to the end, that's ours. Of being servant to each other, even in the rightly understood sense, priests to each other, that continues. Jesus speaks to this in what remains in this passage. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So again, Jesus didn't erase the hierarchy. Jesus didn't flatten the hierarchy. He is, as he told them, rightly called Lord and Master, teacher. He, he is, and he speaks to them that way. And then he, he makes that very clear, a servant is not greater than his master. And that will come up again, especially by the time you get Two chapters later in John 15, 
Servant's not greater than his master. If the world hates me, you better expect it's going to hate you. He also speaks of the, the one who sent him being greater than the messenger. It's really important. That's not just for preachers, by the way, or Bible teachers. We're all Christians telling the good news of the gospel. We're, we're messengers. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. So again, this is, the, this is John 6, John 17. This is, it's all here. Jesus knows. And, and the world is divided, the entire population of the world, between those who are His and those who are not. Those who belong to the world, those who belong to Him. I know whom I have chosen. You'll notice agency there. It's not just, it's not just that the Lord has given them unto the Son, but that the Son has chosen them. You have not chosen me, I have chosen you. Again, the sovereignty of God in this entire process is just made abundantly clear. And the picture of salvation is having been chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This goes back to Psalm 41, verse 9, and, the, and that's exactly what the passage says. This uh, one who had posed as a friend, he who ate my bread, received my hospitality, lifted his heel against me. And that's exactly what Judas Iscariot is about to do. The one who ate his bread, the one who received his friendship, the one who posed as a friend, will now strike a mortal blow. But that's a fulfillment, Jesus says, of, of Old Testament predictive prophecy as found in the 41st Psalm. And there it is. In verse 19, Jesus says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. So this is a bookend of sorts because Jesus said, uh, you don't understand this now, but you'll understand it later, early in the passage. And now He says, you know, after it's all happened, He says, you still don't quite understand all of this, but He says, you will. Because when other things take place, he doesn't just say in this passage here at the end of, of the paragraph, he doesn't just say, at the end of all this, you'll understand. He says, at the end of this, you will believe that I am He. A summary of the fact that Jesus is everything He declared Himself to be. And, and this includes everything from the Messiah who sit on David's throne uh, to the servant, the, the substitutionary Savior, the Lord, everything, Savior. But there's more. Truly, truly, in verse 20, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So Jesus is going to send them into the world, and uh, Jesus says, look, this is the way it works with servant and master. If they would receive me, they will receive you. If they won't receive you, they would not receive me. This is the way it works. But as we have to come to a conclusion this morning, I want us to think about that word receives because it's, it's, it's a word that is better than the word most contemporary Christians in the United States use. Uh, the, the general evangelical parlance in the United States about coming to faith in Christ, confessing Christ and becoming a Christian is, 
accepting Christ as Savior and Lord. It's, it's the language that I heard as a child. It's the language that is so familiar you hear evangelicals use this word all over. It's not a New Testament word. There's no accepting found in the New Testament. Now, that's not to say that there's no agency required, that there's no faith required, that there's no profession of faith required. There is, but the word that Jesus himself uses and that is used of Jesus in the Gospel of John is receives, and receives is different than accepts. Receives is a better word. How does one become a Christian? One receives Jesus as Savior and Lord. Is that, and as we shall see, and, and we'll be looking further in the Gospel of John, this will become even more clear, receive and believe come in tandem. So you have the prologue to the Gospel of John, and in those very first verses, you have verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of a man, but of God. Now notice that believes and receives are right there in tandem in that verse. So uh, receiving is a bigger word than believing, but believing is essential to receiving. In John chapter 3, that will be made clear again in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So, receives is here. It's right here. It's right here in this passage. This is the way Jesus is talking here. Receiving. And then just notice again the language that he uses. Truly, truly, I say to you, and again, that's the emphatic introduction. Pay attention. Whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So, in this farewell discourse, just a few paragraphs into John chapter 13, Jesus does this stunning act, performs this astounding act of washing the feet of the disciples. And indeed, they will understand it shortly, backwards. They bring nothing but their dirty feet. Jesus humbles himself to wash them clean. The atonement is just that. We bring nothing but our dirt. And Jesus washes us clean by His blood. We belong to Him. Yes, we've received Him. Yes, but that's only because He chose us. Yes, we've received Him. And we believed in Him. That demonstrates that we're His. And we're His forever, having loved us from the beginning. He will love us to the end. Now this morning, maybe you're thinking, you know, John 13 is a very interesting passage, but Christ never washed my feet. Just know this. He washed you white as snow. As Peter said, head to toe. No more washing needed. Baptism, the picture, into the water by immersion. 
raised to walk in newness of life. We're washed people. Sent with a message. If they'll receive the messenger, they'll receive Christ. If they won't receive Christ, they won't receive the messenger. But we're the ones who are sent. And that's the way it works. He loves us to the end. I said I look forward to this passage. It's, uh, it's one of the sweetest passages in all of Scripture. Christians read it over and over again. And contemporary Christians probably think, this washing of the feet is sweet, but it's odd. The more you understand it, it's not just odd. It's shocking. The gospel's more shocking. That's the point. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just so thankful for what you have given us, not just in this passage, not just in these verses, not just in the 13th chapter of John, not just in the farewell discourse, but in Christ. Father, we're thankful for your word, inerrant and infallible, verbally inspired, given to us such that when we read your word, we hear you speak. We pray that the Holy Spirit will apply this word to our hearts, to the increase of our faith, and the increase of your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thankful for the privilege of being together. We'll look forward to it. Lord willing, again next week. God bless you.